excited to share episode five of season two of Own the Future. It's a special one considering that Truman and I initially met through the guest that we have on today, Jerry Liu of Mavron. He's also an angel investor of both Basic Space and Scout, but he's someone who definitely knows what's cool. Just so the listeners are aware, this conversation was recorded March 22nd, so about two and a half months ago, right in the thick of NFT and Bitcoin night. We kept things real between the three of us and had a good open discussion about being a founder, an investor, and potentially owning a restaurant. Let's get to it. Where are you uh, zooming in from right now? I am in New York. And you're going to come visit us in, in LA very soon, right? Yeah, probably come out next week. Are you vaccinated? I'm not. Okay, well, I don't know if you can come visit us. I'm so sorry. I, I might get <laughs> double dose Johnson & Johnson tomorrow, I think. Really? You're going for the J&J? Okay. Why don't we start by, yeah, just giving us a little bit of a 60-second bio. Give us your street cred. Enlighten the audience, please. Born and raised in the Bay, grew up Taiwanese-American, worked at Google, specifically at YouTube, sort of fell in love with the digital media creator influencer space, came out to New York uh, afterwards, just because at the end of the day, I've been in the Bay Area all my life, worked with Sherry Redstone, whose father founded Viacom, started investing in media entertainment, and then joined the team at Mavron, which does consumer-only investments. Sherry, what was it like working with Sherry Redstone? It was awesome. You get to have visibility into like a lot of her network. It was helpful in getting access to, to deals, right? Like if you were investing in a media entertainment company and you can get Sherry on the line, like founders want to talk to them. Uh, but was she like very involved, like hands-on in all of your deals? Or was it just like you have to close the deal? Like No, she, she was there every partner meeting. So every week she was there. Like wow. we couldn't invest in a deal without her being there and meeting founders. So she's very hands-on. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, I'm sure it definitely helped with anything media related, right? Yeah. What was the coolest celebrity you got to meet through that connection or coolest experience you had, I guess, if any? So, I mean, I, w- I didn't join when they did the investment, but they invested in like Tom Brady's company, right? Oh, right. And so like they got to meet like Tom Brady and like <laughs> came to present and all of that. So it, it's kind of funny because I feel like everyone is, I, I always just see, I mean, in my around, but also the names being mentioned of these like international like sports players and just NBA players and NFL players. I feel like they're really upping up their seed stage investing games. Yeah, dude. The like cap tables these days are filled with like athletes, not even only athletes, but like celebrity influencers. Like, I don't know if you saw, but they're opening um these, the kids in the hype house yeah, yeah, yeah. from TikTok or someone told me about how they're opening up this fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like TikTok hype house influencers to invest on the cap table just to like promote products. And this, again, this, this might precede your time, Truman, you might've been in middle school, but like to give credit where credit is due on the athlete side, I would say Andre Iguodala was like the first basketball players to really get involved and obviously being in the Bay area helped. And then from a quote unquote celebrity side, I mean, obviously like people know about Ashton Kutcher and stuff, but also low key been a long-term investor in some good bets is um, Jared Leto. I mean, what kind of value are they bringing to the company? Like, no, just not from like a shape perspective, just really curious. Like, is it just promo? That's like the Sway and the Hype House guys. Like they understand Gen Z culture, I guess you want to say, or like a lot of brands haven't fully navigated TikTok as a marketing channel. Maybe, you know, one of their value adds is better understanding that space. And then athletes, I'm assuming a lot of it is connections based, right? Well, I'd say at least athletes, I would say also authenticity and they know, I mean, if it's a product, right, or a service that ties back into their, you know, craft, then I think that's yeah. all right, let's get into some of these questions that Truman and I literally spent our Sunday for you, Jerry. Yes, sir. We literally were on the phone <laughs> on Sunday trying to come up with some questions for you. Let me just start with the easy ones. Do you own a Peloton? We, I think we know the answer to this one. Do you? Because I don't. <laughs> wait, oh, wait, was that the, was that the assumption? 
<laughs> no, I like for most people I'd say yes, but for you I was like, there's no way. Yeah, Another question that we had that we were that I took out of actually also, do you own a Patagonia vest? I I don't. I own a Scout crew deck. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I mean, we're about to do an experience so. with that just to give you a little inside uh, info. Oh there. shit! Okay, that's gonna be your fastest sell all time, Jesse. It's on basic space for some lucky people. Let's do a serious question. Predict what month in year Bitcoin will hit hundred k. Give us a month and a year. Let's say 12, 2021. End of the year. The reason why, I guess, is um, if you believe in the idea that Bitcoin is digital gold, if you look at the market cap of gold, it's 10 trillion. Bitcoin, it's 1 trillion. Plus the fact that Bitcoin is limited supply, where it's, what, 21 million. You know, there's 10x as a potential upside. In addition to the fact that you're seeing like institutions, the Teslas, Squares, are all adding Bitcoin as part of their treasury operations where, I don't know, it's just going to drive up the inherent value long term where... Has crypto gone mainstream amongst Gen Z? I mean, you're, I think you should, you're asking us. Yeah, I mean, I'm asking myself, but like as a form of investment, I'd say yes, because I think that with the addition of Robinhood and them adding yeah. crypto, like, <laughs> yeah. anything, any crypto is easy. But as a form of payment, like I think we're still way off oh yeah far off from like crypto being used on a transaction based level well i mean what was the stat like 70 percent plus have held on to their crypto and haven't changed hands all right so people are just holding it so how does value does value increase or decrease as as the actual like, transaction amount goes up or down i imagine it increases right because where it's like now people can see that there is actual value in other right. uh, other ways it's being used right i think the whole rise of i mean yes like nfts and all this kind of stuff right it's People are making money on crypto and they're just transferring their value to NFTs where, you know, if you're if you're rich, you're not going to show someone your crypto wallet and say, hey, this is how much money I have in my bank account. Look at me. Right. right. But their way of like flexing digitally is like, hey, look at this NFT that I own that's worth ten, twenty thousand dollars. Right. And I think people are saying I don't know if you guys know what like the crypto punks, which is like these like yeah. 10,000 or something. Yeah, yeah. So people are saying like, I have some, I have like aliens. Really? <laughs> yeah. I put like crypto punks are like the digital Rolex, right? Right. Sure. I don't really get that analogy, but yes, they had the idea there is like, yes, it's your way to flex in the digital world. Right. Okay. Let's keep it moving. Question for you, Jerry. What's one deal if, if you have one that you sort of looking back regret passing on? There are, I guess too many to count but at the same time i guess the alternative to that is it's also too early to say right because i again started only venture year and a half ago for which you haven't really seen any of this these things play out right like what is considered success right like is it the fact that they've gotten future financing i think that's the one thing about like venture general is that the feedback loop are so long right you know the feedback loop is so disconnected from your initial decision of like do you invest or not invest right and so honestly i think it's hard to derive any lessons from there specifically well i'll follow up with what in your book right is jerry what milestone does that company need to hit for your eyes to say okay that was a successful investment yeah i mean i think it's sort of seeing evidence that there is forward momentum right like whether it is like other investors are putting more capital to work or they're able to hire and convince other employees to join on board and join the mission. Are they increasing their metrics? And so I think there's evidence of forward momentum that the company is actually iterating and moving along, right? How do you value a company though, outside of the usual metrics, yeah. just from a personal POV? You know, I think we're curious, like how do you value a company in a business? 
I think everyone has their own sort of internal framework. There's no, it's always some sort of combination of like team, market, product, um, but the, the stack ranking of them differs from person to person. For me, I think a lot about sort of team and market. So like team, was it, you're the average of your five closest friends, I think is like the, the, the saying where I think about that in terms of professional relationships too, right? Like when I meet a founder, you ask yourself, is this person one of those, potentially one of those five people? that you're, you're able to develop a relationship over the next decade. From the market side, a lot of VCs over-index on team over market just because like if you pass on a deal or a deal fails, it's easy to use team as sort of a scapegoat to be able to say, we missed out on the deal because the team wasn't actually good, right? Whereas I think the market is actually interesting to explore as a, as a vector because you know, if you look at the, the, the companies like in, uh, Instacart and DoorDash, they had a hard time raising because the founders weren't your typical founders, right? First time founders couldn't necessarily articulate the story and vision in a VC lingo type of way, but they became super successful. And so for me, that just translated into how do I find the next opportunity that is the next Instacart or Dash, right? To focus on like the market more so than the team. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I hear that. So I, I'm curious because just, you mentioned it, like how this is obviously like I'm very new at this and learning a ton every day, but I'm curious in your eyes as like a, an investor, how heavy do you weight the founder's experience into your decisions? I think it implicitly de-risks a lot of things when you make the investment, right? So it's like, if they've gone through the financing process, they have all the relationships that are built out, they know how it works and how to sincerely play the game. I think one of the things that I look for is sort of like, if it is their first time, are they culturable, right? Are they able to adapt do they feel like nothing is too good for them and they're willing to take on tasks that's not necessarily their job? Whereas I guess sometimes with like second time founders, they come with egos and not necessarily aren't as coachable. And so that's kind of a trade off. I wouldn't discount first time founders for sure. Don't worry, Truman, you're on your second. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're good. This is first VC backed one. First VC one, yeah. Such a different world. Is it? I mean, yeah, like. Back in the day when I first started this and I first had like, uh, you were one of the first VC meetings that I took. Yeah. Every single VC that hit me up, I was like, like honored by the opportunity and like taking on like 45 minute phone calls and like yeah. every single day. I, I didn't realize that there's a massive sea of different VCs and you really want to optimize your time and strategically choose kind of who would best be a fit rather than just like letting everyone in. Yeah. Well, I guess has it changed? Has it changed the way you think about operating your company? Like, is it because now you have investors that the expectations around growth are much higher than they were if you had just run your company bootstrapped? Well, I guess it's more just like a, a cash flow perspective, right? Like before we were kind of used to this kind of starting a company and just optimizing everything to kind of increase like monthly dividends that are paid out to all the founders. Yeah. And now it's like, hey, we're losing money every single month and our value and our pockets don't get full until years down the line right like yeah. it's kind of like a kind of an entire shift of how you're running your company so yeah there was it's a, it's a major difference and everything's kind of has to be up the code <laughs> hr and like paying like before we would categorize everyone as 1099s uh, yeah. you know like and then just call it a day now it's like wt workers comp pto taxes like uh, german, german has to wear a hat as the hr person now too yeah i i monitor our slack or uh, any uh, suspicious behavior. <laughs> we want to like flip that a little bit, right? So like what makes you, you think, a viable, valuable 
investor to entrepreneurs like us. Now, the caveat is that like Jerry's the one who introduced Truman and I, so he's already added some significant value and an angel investor actually in both of our companies, just for disclosure. <laughs> Mavron, great, sure, but like I think you as an investor, right? What's your value add? I don't know, as, as broad as it sounds, really vibing with the founder, right? Like regardless of what happens after the company, whether it is successful or whether it fails, like I want the founder to be able to feel like they had a great relationship with me and same, same vice versa, right? Where it's like, you know, always there to support them, always there to, as a sounding board, um, whether or not they need intros. And it's, if it does take off, it's a win-win, but if it's not like, at least there's like a foundation for which, you know, there was a relationship that could be had. Right. And so it's hard for me to quantify, like, I am good because I can make all these intros, right? I think it's just more like being able to vibe with the founder. And so that's why like, I heavily emphasize just like spending time to getting to know, you know, the companies that I invest in and feeling like whether or not this is a relationship that could be had long term. He holds two records in my um, investing relationship book, which is <laughs> the zero Zoom meetings or like asking me for updates in terms of like numbers and pressuring me since like he invested and two, making the most intros. That's a great value. Actually, I can speak to that too. Yeah, it's constantly in the back of my mind that like, oh, I've invested in Scout in basic space and any time I see potential synergies with founders I meet or with people that I get introduced to, like it's always going to come up, right? Where it's like, oh, I think you should meet XYZ because I think you guys would get along or could be value added or value creative to both companies, right? And so, yeah, it's it's always one of those things where I guess I'm always always thinking about you know those companies. Jerry, I feel like you're the goat at crafting cold emails. I feel like you do that. You you do that a lot, right? I, I do that a lot. Yeah. I'm curious what your most successful cold email story is, and like what goes into crafting a great cold email. <laughs> I, I think I I have to give the credit to Blake. Like okay. I think Blake is like the goat in that aspect. Like Robbins, for those who don't know. Yeah, Blake Robbins, love the great friend, and also investor in Scout. I don't know if I. A crazy story around it but i definitely gotten less afraid about reaching out just because like i feel like you just gotta shoot your shot right like yeah. what's the worst that can happen like they don't respond okay fine like right. there's other people that you can network with but i've surprisingly found out that maybe it's a function of covid and people are at home with nothing better to do that it's definitely <laughs> they're much more responsive and if you put in the time and effort to show that you've done your homework and you've already established like why it is that you want to chat versus let me just pick your brain or whatever it is like having a reason for why you want to have the conversation, restricting it to like 15, 10, 15 minutes. And if it does go longer then it does go longer, these like little tidbits are helpful, but right. yeah, I think you just gotta, just gotta go for it. I've always loved cold emailing. And I think it also says about the person to Jerry's point. Yeah. Like wanting to talk and you want to make sure you provide the right context. But I've also found that sometimes even a second follow-up because everyone's busy. You want to talk to someone important, you have to keep it concise. And then also understand that like, even if you have something to offer, they might've missed it. Having kind of your inner confidence and knowing that you're adding value to the conversation and that they, it's actually, they're missing out if they don't talk to you. That's the mentality you have to have. So kind of like framing it that like, this is actually an opportunity for the person you're emailing that they don't want to miss out on. Like, I don't even, I can name a few well-known people. I don't know if I should or not, where it's like (laughs) one of them in particular, I've gotten like literally spent the day going back and forth arguing almost about like our thesis on like the future of commerce and then his, right. And just to actually give you a hint, one of you said his name earlier. 
I don't even know. <laughs> he talks about it this time. Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, Tom. <laughs> Tom Brady. No, it's not. It's but no, but my point. And there are other people. Like I have the best story. I used to show this to my friends. Like I, you know, I read Principles by Ray Dalio a couple of years ago, whenever it was, and he was going on the whole podcast. My assistant at the time found his email, and then I emailed him. And then Bridgewater has this crazy system where they filter like the bots and emails. And then you have to like go through this process to get through the email. And then I finally got through and then like it was Ray Dalio responding. And then I asked him a question and to like get some time. And he literally was like, I'm sorry, I don't have time. No. Because he, he said, not now. That sort of lets you respond back to him later down the road and be like, hey, is now a good time? And then now he feels obligated because he's already used that card not now, once, right? And in people like in media, right? Like, so it's funny. Like, I, I'm a big basketball junkie. I think you both kind of are too, right? We follow basketball. So one time, like, I had someone look up Zach Lowe's email because that's like my favorite podcast and writer. And then I just hit him up on his personal email. And then he's like, let's get drinks. So like, yeah, we would hang out and talk basketball. And now like we text and stuff. As long as, you know, you're, you're, you've got something to offer, I think. Go shoot your shot. I don't know how you guys feel about Zooms and getting to know people over Zooms, but I feel like I mean, that's also part of the reason why I'm coming to LA, right? It's like you can only get to know someone well enough over Zoom, whereas I feel like the relationship deepens just much faster when you actually get to hang out in person, right? I, I started in Zoom world, like, I mean, c- Corona world. Like, I, I don't know what it's like on the flip side. Well, no, not even that. Like, your co-founders were all met through yeah, Zoom? Yeah, internet friends. Yeah, internet friends. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's crazy. Uh, I have partners who will literally fly to where the founder is. Some partners like really value the face to face time where, you know, if we're trying to close a deal, the partner will fly there because in order for us to make to write a big check, I don't know, we have to be convinced that the founder is the right founder and this right team. And I don't know if you actually get that feeling over Zoom, right? Interesting. Even really Truman, it could, you know, you got to make sure you're a real person. Yeah, I could be a robot. Well, no, I guess it's because like for you guys, you guys spend, or I guess Truman, your co-founders, like you spend 24-7 basically like all on Zoom or Discord or whatever it is, like always connected. Whereas maybe in the venture side, it's like you spend 30, 45 minutes a week, maybe once a month with some investors or other founders that like, you just don't have as many touch points, right? So then the important question, Truman, that this is your question, favorite restaurant to close the deal. What's your favorite spot to close the deal, Jerry? I don't have one. Because I was actually thinking like, no, like my, I mean, the ideal case, because I know, I know Truman's story, like the, the ideal case would be to like invite them to my house, cook dinner, oh grab wine and all that kind of stuff, right? I think that's the ideal case, right? Because it's like, it's intimate. It's a safe space where you like invite the founder to your own home and all that kind of stuff. Where yeah, I don't know. I live in a one bedroom apartment in New York. Like <laughs> I'd rather go out, but at the same time, like maybe I haven't been in Metro long enough to know like how does like a dinner close deals? I mean, you hear the stories nowadays where like people are closing deals by I mean, I'm not gonna name any names, but like some funds are just like, here's my private jet come visit me. Oh, wow. That's a thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a thing. Right. And so Damn. people are pulling all the stuff. So I don't know if a, I don't know if a, a dinner at a restaurant is necessarily <laughs> going to do anything. Right. Like if you want to win deals, like, like partners are competing for like who has more money to blow. Right. No, but it's, I, I've heard, I've heard subtle things about like closing deals, which is interesting where it's like, you know, as long as you 
put in the time as the fun perspective to show that. So for example, let's say there's a consumer social company, right? Like if you put in the time and have everyone on your team, let's say from the Mavron's perspective, use the product. Let's say, let's say the consumer company was like Insta- uh, Snapchat, right? It's like, if we all, if Mavron is a fund, all use Snapchat and sent a video of us saying like, good job, we love your product and sending it to the founder, right? Showcasing that like, you've actually used the product, you're like big fans of the product, and you've put in the work. Rather than competing to see who can spend the most money, I think there's the little things that actually matter a lot. Yeah, definitely. I would love to just take a moment to ask Jerry a straight on question, which is like, are you wearing AirPod Pros or AirPod Maxes? I am. I am. Since you have headphones on, another question we got for you, which song or musician gets you hype? It's crazy because like I used to be like heavy into like specific artists, but now it's more like genre focused, I guess. So it's like, I'll do anything from like Talking Monster to Manila Killa to Louis Futon to, I don't know if you guys know. I have any no of these idea guys. what any of these things are. <laughs> any things. Yeah. Or then you go and then you have like the Drakes or the... The Drakes. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, Kanye West. Like, Kanye I don't West, know. Yeah. <laughs> like the more mainstream ones or like... I don't know, it's a vibe, but at the same time, like, I don't know if I could just bucket it all into one genre. You have one song that will just, like, guarantee you get you hype? The Ring walkout song, you know? You want to put the hammer down. I've been, I've been uh, listening on repeat to uh, Lemon Pepper, which is on Drake's new album. Honestly, like, I used to be the biggest rap guy, like, hard rap, like, um, I mean, yeah. hard mainstream rap in the sense, like, Migos 2, Culture 2 on repeat. Right? Oh, yeah. Like, a 17-year-old. And um, I think... Over the past year and a half, I've completely did a 180, and I'm now almost all alternative music. Uh, like Sierra Daydreams by Cage the Elephant or um, Mount, like... Um, uh, Coachella Bands. Like Coachella Bands, yeah. Like Tame Impala. Coachella is by far my, my favorite festival. And that's also because of the idea that you can just, like, discover new artists. You can hop from alternative to rap to EDM. I mean, rumor has it Jerry only uh, invested in basic space for admin tickets from Jesse. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get to the special ring bands. Wait, so another question for you, Jerry. Since um, Truman just turned 20, I found out when we were having dinner at Pat's last week, I thought he was still 19. So question to you, what did you wish you had known when you were 20? I always, when someone asks this, I always get reminded of like Drew Houston, the guy who started Jawbox. I think he, someone asked him this and he also, he said like three things. It's like one, a tennis ball. It, it reminds you to be obsessed about one certain thing because he like brings the analogy of like, imagine throwing a tennis ball to a dog, right? And the dog is like super obsessed with that tennis ball. The second he, he talks about is like circle, and the reason why he says circles, because again, it goes back to the point of like, you're the average of five of your closest friends, right? So surround yourself with like that circle of friends. And then the next is like 30,000. So it's completely random, but 30,000 is because the number of days for which a person lives is like 30,000. So just make every day count. 30,000 is like 80, 80 years or so. It literally is like a tennis ball circle at 30,000. And I was like, oh, that's actually like, three really good points just like simplified it to those three things come on like let's give your like yeah, i heard his answer what's your answer what's like your number one thing i don't care about drew houston's yeah, answer. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know no, that was a good answer i do like that but i'm curious what yours is i think at 20 i was always like planning what my five-year 10-year 15-year plan was and like what are the stepping stones to get there but then i realized like everything changes so fast and you have no control over like what happens one year, two years later, right? And so rather than just like optimize for that long-term path, it's just optimize for 
surrounding yourself with smart people and then i think good things will come from it definitely yeah i mean i always like to say to my like founders like let's get enough smart people in the same room and something will happen something something will happen yeah yeah exactly (laughs) well then the opposite end of that what would be your dream last job yeah i mean i'm like i want to open up a coffee shop that exclusively sells iced lattes i guess tied to that tied to that point the, the last job is uh working as a sushi chef really and that's also because i was like moving to tokyo and just being a sushi chef i can't cook at all <laughs> but this is inspired by um jiro dreams of sushi which is like the documentary oh, of course and then like ever since that i was just like fell in love with like the craft even though i can't cook but like i would go to tokyo be mentored do the whole like washing rice and massage like, the octopus for 45 minutes yeah exactly <laughs> Do all that. Have either of you ever worked in a restaurant or been involved in a restaurant? <laughs> no. So as someone who's been a partner and I've helped a, a f- good friend of mine on that business for a little bit, actually it requires a lot of discipline, which is great, but it's like the most thankless job you can have. So you kind of have to like literally suffer every minute and then still be very organized and still do yeah. everything correctly and then do it repetitively over and over. And then Sounds you like see people literally <laughs> like, you know, I, started, I, I didn't realize how on point everyone is even in the kitchen like back of house and yeah. front of house stuff and you've got to like label everything and even like giving somebody free coffee can impact like your bottom line by like 0.5 percent no yeah. spillage like the food costs all this stuff it's insane having said all that Truman, even when you and i talked yesterday it's like yeah if money wasn't an objective i would love to have like a restaurant where it's just like yeah. friends and family right so it's yeah, yeah, yeah. You have, if you don't have to make money and if it, that profitability making profits is not an objective then I think it's a great business. Oh, I mean, yeah, I hear that. Like, I think restaurants like the most common answer. I feel like everyone wants to some in some way or form get into like the food business. I'll start a sushi restaurant with a coffee shop on the side, <laughs> and then and then Jesse can be the owner. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's family business.